Parsha is Parsha's Pinchas. And we're going to talk about relationships this week. Everyone's favorite topic. Um, so I got to give a little bit of background. We're going to do a little Kabbalah and then a little pra- practical relationship advice. Okay, but first, Rebecca pointed out that we are in a very auspicious time of the year. Does anyone know what the time of the year that we're in right now is called? The three weeks, exactly. And how many weeks is it? Good guess, three. It's three weeks, uh, more or less. Yeah, three weeks of mourning. And it's a very uh, intense time. We don't listen to music. We don't get haircuts. And then the, the for the first two weeks, and then the last nine days, we don't eat meat and we don't do laundry, and we don't take hot showers. So um, it's all in mourning. What are we mourning for? Destruction of the temple. Good. And why are we mourning for that? Why is that a big deal for us? Stay tuned. Maybe we'll discuss it tonight. And if not, come back on Tisha B'Av. We'll be doing a uh, all several hour learning session with a couple of different Rage staff, and uh, hopefully go deep into the idea. So, why was the temple destroyed? So the temple was destroyed twice, two times, and there, the Talmud gives reasons, spiritual reasons, for why the sages of the Talmud believe that the temple was destroyed, and uh, we're going to discuss some of those reasons. Okay, but um, I'll tell you now. Actually, two two of the reasons given. The first temple, does anyone know the reason why the first temple was destroyed? The reasons are slightly different for the first temple and the second temple. So, the f- yeah, first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. Second temple was destroyed by the Romans, by Titus. And the first temple, the Talmud says, was destroyed because of the three biggest sins. Does anyone know what the top three are of all time worst sins? Wow, someone has been coming to a lot of classes this year. Adultery, idolatry, and anyone else for top three? Murder, Jaylene lip synced it. She got it. Murder, adultery, and idolatry. But what's interesting is that the second temple, they weren't doing those things. Second temple, the Jews were pretty righteous, pretty religious, pretty, pretty uh, pious. So why was the second temple destroyed? Anyone know? Talmud says. Survey says. The Talmud says, because of hatred, baseless hatred, hating each other, not loving each other. So we're going to try to understand, hopefully tonight, a little bit more to the meaning behind these, these what these four things have in common. Okay, this week's Parsha is a little bit of a continuation from last week's Parsha. So we're really going to talk about really that connection. So last week's Parsha, we talked about Bilaam who was the sorcerer prophet who tried to curse the Jewish people and failed. And Bilaam, after failing to curse the Jewish people several times, he comes back with a master plan. And he says, you know what? I know how to get the Jews. Let's send the daughters of Moab and have them seduce the Jewish men and get the men to get involved in all sorts of uh, illicit, non-kosher relationships. And then God's going to uh, punish them. And that's what he does. And he was successful. And a lot of Jews died in a plague, and it was bad news. So then someone named Pinchas stands up and one of the leaders of the Jewish people it's actually quite graphic 
one of the leaders of, of one of the tribes takes a Moabite girl publicly into his tent and Pinchas was is called a zealot and he gets up and he grabs a spear and he goes into the tent and don't do this at home and he literally skewers the prince and this Moabite girl and that sounds very not politically correct doesn't sound nice very bloody and gory and uh generally not such a nice thing to do but and um the talmud explains that had he asked moshe moshe would have told him he can't do that but because he was feeling so zealous and so upset that this this public desecration of the jewish people was taking place in front of everyone that he felt like he had to make a stance and stop what was going on and he did that and brought an end to what was going on and people sort of snapped out of it and in reward for this very gruesome and bloody act um, so the plague stops 24,000 people died in the plague and then Pinchas is rewarded by becoming a Kohen a priest he gets the blessing of becoming a Kohen David you a Kohen? Kaplan is a traditionally a Kohen name so alright um, so Pinchas becomes a Kohen and normally the Kohanim were given to the sons of Aaron and Pinchas was actually a son of Aaron he was he was a grandson of Aaron and so he did not become a Kohen because he was born to a son of Aaron before the bloodline was given over to Aaron so Aaron's descendants all became Kohanim but not the descendants that were born before it was given over to him and his son Elazar. So Pinchas now retroactively became a Kohen. And he was given something called Brissi Shalom. A bris, which is like a pact of peace. And again, the question is, why did he get a pact of peace for doing a bloody act? Why did he become a Kohen? Kohanim represent love and kindness from doing a bloody act. And another question we have to ask is, how did Bilaam know that this was the way to get the Jews? How did he know that attacking us with uh, sexual immorality was going to cause us to fail? Um, so, what else do we have to know? Why specifically did he send the daughters of Moab is a question that I'd like to try to answer. This Moab was one of the nations in the area, but why specifically them? Why did they? Why were they the ones to seduce the Jews? And then, um, how did Pinchas know to respond with this act of zealous, zealousness, this act of violence? How did he know that that was what was needed at that moment? Welcome, Julia. Okay, so let's try to answer all these questions. So, what was Bilaam's power? We mentioned it briefly last week. How did Bilaam curse the Jewish people? What was his whole strategy? So the Talmud explains that Bilaam understood something very specific. He had the ability to tap in to divine energy. And he recognized that for... I don't know how many minutes there are in a day, but 60 times 24... Hold on. 60 times 24. For 1,440 minutes a day, God is sending down pure love into this world. And for a split second of that last minute, a split second, he has a moment of anger. And the Talmud says that God gets angry every day for a split second. And in that split second, Bilaam was able to tap into that power of anger and manipulate it and in order to curse. Now, it's interesting, the Talmud asks a question, um, the, actually the commentaries on the Talmud, Tosos asks a question, what was Bilaam's curse? If that anger was just for such a split second, how did, what was Bilaam able to say or do in that split second in order to cast his curse? So one explanation is that he just would start his curse in that second, and that was enough to have the power to continue the curse. And the other explanation is that he's just said a single word, 
in that split second. And the word that he said was the word kalem, which means destruction. And the commentaries point out something very interesting, that the word kalem is the opposite of the word melech. What's a melech? A melech is a king. The word melech is the letters mem, lamed, kaf, and the word kalem is le letters kaf, lamed, mem. It's the opposite of the word melech. What's a melech? So the Kabbalistic sources explain that the word melech stands for three different parts of the body. The mem stands for moach, which means mind. The lamed stands for lev, which means heart. And the kaf stands for, for kaved, which means liver. And the idea is that the mind controls, uh, a king has his mind controlling his body. That your mind controls your emotions, which control your, your body and your organs. And, and um, that's the idea of kingship, is complete control, complete self-control. And this is really what modern psychology teaches, CBT, is that our emotions are, don't have a mind of their own. Emotions have a heart of their own. And the heart of the that that your emotions that control your emotions is really subservient to the mind. So if a person is having a bad day, if you're feeling depressed, sad, angry, it's essential to recognize that that's only because you're having sad, angry, or depressed thoughts. There's no such thing as an emotion without a thought. So it's really our thoughts that control our emotions. So if you're in a really bad mood, if you're depressed, you're like, I can't get out of it. It's just the way I feel. It's important to realize it's not the way you feel, it's the way you think. And your thoughts are in your control. We have the ability to change our thoughts in any moment. So if you recognize the thoughts that are causing you anxiety, depression, sadness, anger, and you change them, that will change your emotions. So a king is someone whose mind controls the emotions and the heart. Uh, destruction is when the body controls the emotions which controls the mind. And it works that way as well, because if your body is really excited by something, physical pleasure of any sort, choose your poison, right? Whatever, whatever you're into, so your emotions get attached to and attracted to, and then your mind justifies those behaviors. So if you know anyone who's in a bad relationship, so why do they stay with it? The answer is because they're emotionally and physically addicted and their mind keeps telling them it's it's good it's good for you don't worry don't listen to anyone so that was Bilaam's curse is to put the body on top kalem destruction put the body on top so why the question that we have to ask ourselves is why does god get angry for a second every day right we believe that god is completely merciful so why, why, what's the purpose of God being angry for a split second every day? What do we need that for? If within that split second of anger, there's a potential for such destruction, why do we need it? Why should there be anger in this world? So now we'll go into a little Kabbalah, now that Mike's here. Okay, so the word anger, for anger, in, in Kabbalah, represents the opposite of love. Love and anger, maybe love and hate, you could say, are opposite emotions. What's the energy of love, Kabbalistically? What's the movement of love? If I were to ask you, what direction does love flow? What is, what is love all about? Describe it to me, Kabbalistically, energy-wise. What is the energy of love? Outward, it's expansion, it's flow, it's, it's oneness, it's connection, right? On the other hand, by that token, Anger is the cessation of connection and flow. It's the cutting off of that connection. So anger is literally a breakage of that love, life force connection. So for a split second of the day, there's a cut. There's a cutoff of God's life force, love giving relationship. So what's the purpose of that? Why is there a break in that connection for one second a day? So, what is the foundation of relationship? What would you say? What energy defines relationship? Is it... Now, there are two primary emotions in Kabbalah. There's love and there's fear. 
And the Zohar describes love and fear as two wings that allow our actions to fly. If a person does a mitzvah, the Zohar says, without love and fear, then the mitzvah doesn't do anything. But if you put your heart of love and fear, reverence, awe, into the performance of mitzvahs, so those mitzvahs get spiritual wings and they fly up to higher worlds. So which would you say, okay, and we're going to translate fear as respect, right? Because love is the desire to connect to, to become one with. Fear is the desire to pull back individuality, boundaries, borders, respect. Which would you say is the most essential part of a relationship? The love, the desire to come close, or the fear, the desire to hold back? Yeah, why? Typical Jewish answer, but why? Why do you need both? You need a balance somehow. A balance between between the desire to draw close and the desire to dis differentiate. So welcome, Andy. So when you think about how these express themselves in in a in a relationship, so obviously the the answer that I think, perhaps without Jaylene's Talmudic training, one might give is obviously love. We're talking about relationships. Relationships are built on love, and yet, of course, the Jewish answer is that you need love and fear. So how does that fit? So that when we talk about fear in relationships, what we're talking about is boundaries. And how do boundaries manifest themselves? They manifest themselves through commitment and respect for the other's individuality. Now I'll ask you again. You might need both, Jaylene, but which is more important? The love or the fear? The respect, individuality, or the desire to merge? What do you guys say? So if you ever hear someone, I might have said this before. Um, I've heard it to I've told, I've heard people say that, Rabbi, I'm a cardiac Jew. I don't do mitzvahs. I don't keep Shabbos or kosher. I have Judaism in my heart. And that's enough. I love God in my heart. I love Judaism in my heart. So we call that, that's called a cardiac Jew, right? It's, it's a heart thing. But what's the purpose of the heart? The purpose of the heart is to pump blood into the limbs of the body. If the heart ceases to pump blood and just keeps it in one place, it just stays in the heart. What's that called? That's called a heart attack. So if a person's love doesn't lead to action, so that's not love, that's that's something else. That's that's a that's an unhealthy love. That's a heart attack. So your 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 Emotions are supposed to lead to actions. And this is the process of, of Jewish self-improvement, and actually all self-improvement, is that your thoughts help you to form your goals and values. Your values then lead to emotions, and your emotions lead to action. It's impossible to change your actions without getting your emotions involved. If you want to go on a diet, if you want to quit smoking, if you want to keep Shabbos, you have to get emotionally connected to why that's a good thing for you to do. Because even though you might know up here, it doesn't lead to action until it hits home in your heart. Because your heart is the connector between body and mind. Body and mind speak completely different languages, the heart speaks both. The heart's in between. That's why um, 
all advertising is talking primarily to what part of you? Mind or heart? All advertising is trying to appeal to your heart. Right? You guys are more quiet on Wednesdays. Um, so your emotions are trying to get you to feel, wow, if I had this, my life would be so much better. Or to appeal to your body. If I buy that car, I'm going to get that girl. Totally got to buy that car now, right? But the girl doesn't come with the car. You want your money back after you buy the car because it didn't help. So essentially, the if like the, I heard a story of a um, uh, actually my father I believe back in the '60s or '70s used to smoke. Both my parents used to smoke. Everyone used to smoke, and you know there were reports that maybe smoking wasn't good for you, but people didn't really believe it. And my father said he had tried to quit a few times, didn't happen. And then one day, he found out that his that my grandmother had lung cancer. And that day was his last cigarette. Why? Because it became real. It hit home. It, it, it went into his emotions. It, it, and it touched him. So that's how we affect change, is by, by learning to bring together the mind and the heart. So, as opposed to other religions, which say all you have to do is love God, have faith, and that's it. Judaism does not believe that. Judaism believes your faith and your love has to lead to action. So, which is more important, love or fear? So, in a love relationship, in a relationship, how do I express love? Participation part, guys. Come on, pretend it's Thursday. Ah, so you express love how? Give me an example of how you might express love. What type of action? Okay. That's funny. I use those as a, for the other example. But uh, washing dishes, taking out garbage, maybe buying flowers. Good, good, Dave. Good good husband to be. Um, so I didn't miss the wedding, did I? What, 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 Mike? Making a sandwich for a husband. That's always good. The way to a man's heart is through his stomach. So, um, and the way to a woman's heart is... By doing dishes and taking out the garbage. <laughs> Too complicated. <laughs> Money. <laughs> That's good. That's good. That's good. I like that. That's good, Julia. So, the way to a woman's heart is through a man's wallet. <laughs> All right. So, if I, if I, what's more damaging for a relationship? Right? If I fail to buy my wife flowers, or if I... Now let's talk about respect, fear. How do I express fear in a relationship? So, so that's why I use taking out the garbage as an example of fear, because I'm not taking out the garbage out of an act of love, I'm taking out the garbage out of fear that if I don't do it, I'm sleeping on the couch. So... <laughs> Great book. So Julie is pointing a great out a great book that I recommend everyone to read. There's actually a Jewish version of it. I have a few copies of um, because the book is, has, is is pretty Christian, but it's a great book. It's maybe when you get engaged. It's a totally um, it's a totally God forbid you're getting engaged soon, Julia. Positive thinking. Um, it's it's uh, the book's five love languages. It's totally in line with Judaism. I've never read a book on relationships that's more Jewish. Um, happens to have a lot of Christian references. So the Jewish version of the book just took out the Christian references, and maybe put in a few Jewish ones. Um, the five love languages, Jewish version. It's the same book, same book. It's just the Jewish version. Um, so. Uh-huh. So, um, the five languages says that each person has a different way that they feel love and that they want love to be expressed. One might be through acts of service, one might be through kind words, 
Another might be through uh, quality time, physical affection, gift giving. So everyone has their own love language. It's very important to find out what your spouse's is. And um, you know the best way to find out what your spouse's love language is? Take the quiz. You did? Nice. <laughs> so it's important. Do it again. But the best way to find out what your spouse's love language is is by seeing how they express love to you. Because everyone innately expresses love the way they would like to receive it, which is totally wrong. Because it's not love isn't about what you want, it's about what the other person wants. But anyway, back to our regular scheduled programming. So if you how else do we express fear in a relationship or, or respect? Bingo. To follow to follow the boundaries that your spouse has set out. The 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 things that the things that they've that they've told you they don't like. If your spouse says no dirty socks on the floor, then you throw your dirty socks on the floor, although it's a positive action, you're picking up the socks, right? But it's that's an act of fear, that's an act of respect. What's the ultimate fear, expression of fear in a relationship? No, that would that might be scary, but that's not an expression of fear in this sense, of, right? How do we? What's the ultimate expression? Just like love is the desire to connect, fear is the desire to 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 um, withdraw, apologizing when you do something wrong. Okay, but even more primary, the 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 number one expression of fear in a relationship is not cheating not breaking that relationship, commitment and respect to the relationship. That's the ultimate act of respect for the other person is I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm going to, right? That's, that's, that's preserving the borders and respecting the other person. So what's more important, again, back to our question, doing positive things or not doing bad things? What's more important in the relationship? Flowers? So, so positive things positive things flowers fear why I don't know the reason but basically you don't want to hurt that person's feelings uh-huh. love is nice it makes you feel warm inside but if you hurt someone's feelings it's worse wow. so fear is more basic right yeah. it, I don't care how much flowers you buy me if you don't show common decency for me then there's there's nothing even starting there, yeah. right? Um, can you think of a relationship that's totally fear-based? Codependency. So, um, what do you mean? Like, I think, um, I don't know, maybe I'm not understanding, but like if you're in an abusive relationship or if you're in a relationship where you're depending on your partner, then the partner's depending on you, so, so well, like, if you don't do this, I'm gonna leave you, kind of thing. Okay, so Julie is pointing out that fear can be really negative. Too much fear in a relationship can become abusive, right? If a whole relationship is based upon excessive fear of losing that relationship or of getting punished in some way, that's a very negative relationship, right? But when when we replace the word fear with respect, right? So a relationship that's entirely respect based would be a relationship between neighbors, right? Pure respect. I don't throw garbage in your lawn. You don't throw garbage in my lawn, right? We don't blast music late at night. That's the extent of our relationship. It's it's almost entirely based on respect. And there's not that much love unless you have a really good relationship with your neighbor and then you borrow food from each other and sugar and salt and, and you do favors for each other and stuff. And that's already a closer relationship. But fear is more more basic, right? If you don't, you're not even like a human being if you don't follow the common courtesies of of relationships. So that's that's an interesting point that David raised. Um, so, which does more harm? Not 
Oh, so was that was that the question I just asked? Yeah, not buying flowers or throwing your socks on the floor. Yeah, the latter. Well, because you could you could spend uh, like a year building trust and positive emotions between people use you know with uh, acts of, of kindness and service, and then in a day just ruin everything. Excellent. Um, you can ruin it in a second. A relationship can be broken very quickly. And it takes time to build a relationship with love. So let's let's take it. I want to explore just a little deeper level. Let's let's look at the most fundamental love relationship in Judaism and in the world. Do you guys know what the most quintessential love story is in Judaism? Love between a mother and a child. That's that's actually that's a good one, Julia. And and this one's very similar to that, but just think a little more spiritual. Oh, Hashem and you. There you go. The relationship between God and the world is the quintessential love relationship. So let's just look Kabbalistically at how that relationship works. So a relationship between God and us begins, according to Kabbalah, with desire to give. That's number one. God is, is infinite oneness. And inside that oneness became, arose a desire to give. And that is which emotion, love or fear? Love. Then, the second step, according to Kabbalah, was that God now had to make space for other to exist. And this process in Kabbalah is called simsum, which means constriction. And in this process, God opened up an empty space within himself. He contracted himself within himself to create emptiness. What would what would that be an expression of? Love or fear? Fear. So that's... Ronnie. Ronnie, you are asking one of the uh, deepest Kabbalistic theological questions. Ronnie is asking if within the empty space, it's, it's called the Macham Halal. The word Halal in Hebrew is the same word in English, hollow, empty space, a vacuum. The question is, is that vacuum a real vacuum? And this, many say, was the primary uh, debate between the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement, and the non-Hasidic Kabbalists. And uh, is, the Baal Shem Tov said God created the illusion of a vacuum, but really he was in that vacuum all along. And the non-Hasidic Kabbalists say, no, it was an actual vacuum. And there's a lot of actual practical ramifications that come out of this debate. And there are those that debate whether or not the debate was really a, a debate. And there are those that try to make the debate smaller than it seems. And uh, there's a lot to talk about, and I'm not proficient uh, any further to explain more than that. But so step number two in relationship is making space for other. And that is an expression of fear. And then according to Kabbalah, God shone into that empty space a small ray of himself, just a little bit, just a tiny little bit of himself. And that is interesting to note. So that's an expression of love. But it's love that's tempered with fear, and that's called rachamim. That's the balance between love and fear. Because too much love would be just filling the empty space again. Right? So love and fear allows you to give to the other just what they need. It's expressing love, but expressing love in the way that the other is able to receive that love. So that ray of light went into the empty space and formed a uh, like uh, a layer of concealment and then that space that light congealed and turned into a vessel a vessel which is now able to receive so that act of love turned into an act of fear fear is that which is able to receive and then god filled that vessel with light another act of love the vessel received the light an act of fear so we see that relationships are based on both of these things both of these emotions but it has to start with love that's the primary motivation for relationship, but then the very next thing you do is you have to create space for other, and that's respecting the other person's boundaries and borders.
as Jaylene said initially, we need both. So you can't build a relationship without love, but you can't preserve a relationship without fear. Love starts it off, fear keeps it going. So fear alone doesn't build anything, right? A relationship that's built only off of fear is either an abusive relationship at worst or at best a neighbor where there's, there's actually no real connection. So it happens to be that these two energies work out into mitzvahs. Does anyone know the number two, the two main categories of mitzvahs that we have in the Torah? Positive and negative. What do you say, Ronnie? I'll say the altase. Ase means the do's, and the altase means the don'ts. Thou shalt and the thou shalt not. So, does anyone know how many there are of each? 613 altogether, there are 248 positive commandments in the Torah and 365 don't do's in the Torah. Now, did any light bulbs go off in your head yet? What's that? Excellent. There are 365 don'ts for every single day of the year. So, yeah, exactly. 248 corresponds to the number of sinews in the body, according to the, the, the way that, that it's counted, according to Judaism. And so, here's the question for you Which one is more serious? the negative prohibitions or the positive prohibitions. And now, if for anyone who's been following along, so we can now make, uh, we can now, now, now understand a little bit more about these prohibitions, right? The negatives come from a place of fear. Don't eat pork. And the positives come from a base of love. Do keep Shabbos, so to speak. Wow. That's amazing. So Ron, Ronnie wants to say um, that the don'ts are more serious than the do's because if you look at American law, don'ts are like criminal, criminal laws. Don't murder, don't steal. And the, the do's are civil laws like pay your taxes and, uh, and help old ladies cross the street. All right, so uh, it's an excellent point, Ronnie. And um, by the way, we'll be talking a little bit about that in the Tama class tomorrow. So um, someone actually said to me yesterday, I was learning with somebody, and he said, Rabbi, I believe in all the moral values of the Torah. I believe in all the, 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 the ethics and the, the marriage stuff. And uh, he said, but I don't believe that in, in not turning on lights, which is on Shabbos, because that's not a moral issue. God, you know, that's not, you're not a bad person if you turn on lights with Shalom Shabbos. And I said to him, well, who decided that it's wrong to steal or to murder? So, according to the Torah, it happens to be that we could have figured that out on our own, right? It's pretty obvious that it's not a good thing to do. But the reason it's wrong is because God says so. So it's no different than turning on a light switch. Jewish ethics and morality doesn't come down just into relations between people and people. When we do things against God or against ourselves, that's also a moral issue. This is interesting. So, so here's the question: which is which is more more important? So we can surmise at this point that the positives come from a place of love, the negatives come from a place of fear. How are we going to figure out which is worse? How can we figure out which which one has more weight? What type of scenario? can we come up with to figure it out?
So the classic case of how do we figure it out is by looking at a conflict of interest. When you have a conflict between two values, so then you can figure out which value is more important, right? If you believe in, um, if you believe in, I don't know, I can't think of a good example. Oh, so the example we're going to learn in the Talmud tomorrow is uh, if you believe, you believe in saving a life, you also believe in not destroying other people's property. If somebody is drowning in a river, can you smash someone's car in order to get a rope to save the person? So if the answer is yes, so which value take, takes precedence? Saving a life over destroying someone's property, right? So the Talmud asks, what do you do when there's a conflict? If you have a negative and a positive at the same time. I'm going to give you an example. This example is incorrect because Shabbos is actually a positive and a negative. The commandment to keep Shabbos is stronger than most commandments because it's both a do and a don't. Don't work on Shabbos and do keep Shabbos. So Shabbos is both things. Sanctify Shabbos. So, but let's say it wasn't. Okay. Now, Shabbos. The Torah says don't do work on Shabbos. Let's say, and um, your parents say. Uh, and the Torah also says honor your mother and your father. So what do you do if your mother and your father say, I want you to go pick something up from the store for me on Shabbos? Do you do it or do you not do it? <laughs> so Ronnie says, don't do it. Let me, let's come up, let's do a different example because Shabbos is complicated. Let's say, um, let's say, yeah. Okay, so the Torah says protect your life. The Torah also says fast. Do you take your medicine on Yom Kippur in order to protect your life, or do you fast? So, David, that's also a tricky one because life trumps every other mitzvah also. So I'll give you, I'll give you the classic example. The classic example as, it, as it's brought in the, in the Talmud is a little bit of a tricky thing, but there's a type of skin affliction. Like a, like a type of blemish on the skin that you're not allowed to cut off. Forbidden to cut it off. Okay, just suffice it without get understanding why that is. There's also a mitzvah to circumcise a, an eight-day-old boy. So what if your eight-day-old boy has a blemish on his bris, and you want to give him a bris and cut it off? Are you allowed to do it or not? All in favor of cutting, raise your hand. All in favor of not cutting. So what's your argument? Everyone said you should give the kid a bris, even though you're transgressing something in the Torah. Okay, again, don't get caught up in the detail of the fact that bris is the most important positive mitzvah. The question is, is positive better than, or is negative better? Which takes to precedence? Positive? Why? So, we we already said, Tatiana said that in a relationship, the flowers are really important. It takes a long time to build that relationship with lots and lots of flowers, but and positive words of affirmation. But one negative will destroy a relationship. Positive requires more effort, that's true. Maybe. So, the Ramban, Nachmandis, famous Kabbalist and Talmudic authority from, uh, from Spain in the uh, 1200s, I believe, says that positive, and the law is ase dochalosase, that positives trump negatives. When you have a conflict of interest and they're both equal, not something like Shabbos, which is a do and a don't. Not something like um, 
taking medicine, which protects preserving your life, take, trumps everything. But two totally equal mitzvahs. You're not allowed to wear a combination of wool and linen. You have to wear tzitzis. If you have a, a linen garment, do you put wool tzitzis on it? The answer is positive wins. You put tzitzis on. You cut off the blemish in order to do a bris. Why? Says the Ramban. Because positives come from love, negatives come from fear, and love is greater. Love is always greater than fear. Yes, Ronnie, question. The, the three prohibitions, the three you know central prohibitions against adultery and murder, they sound very central to Judaism. And these are altas, these are mitzvot altas, and, you know, the whole Torah. One foot, right? Like, uh, you know, don't don't kill, don't steal. No, not don't steal. Uh, you know, idolatry and, and uh, adultery. And, and most of the Ten Commandments are also don'ts. Right, and right. In fact, there are more don'ts than do's. There are 365 don'ts, only 248 do's. There's more than 100 more don'ts. So Ronnie's the, pointing the out memorable, the most memorable and the most uh, you know the most memorable mitzvot are don'ts. So so let me make the question stronger, okay? If you don't put on tefillin or you don't pray, what's the consequence? According to the Torah, no consequence. But if you eat pork, break Shabbos, kill someone, steal, what's the consequence? According to the Torah, there's a punishment. There's a punishment for violating the negative don'ts in the Torah. So it would come from out from that that the negatives are worse. And I'll, I'll tell you another interesting conundrum. There's something called tshuva. Tshuva is repentance, right? And it says in the Talmud that when a person does tshuva, then the sin they did actually becomes a mitzvah. So if a person uh, stole something and they feel really bad and they pay it back and they apologize to the person, they apologize to Hashem, that thing they stole actually became a mitzvah. Because that that the act of theft made them into a better person, brought them closer to God and to other people. So it actually becomes a positive thing if a person does tshuva. A person can always do tshuva only on negative things. You can't do tshuva for not having done a positive mitzvah. If I eat pork and I feel really bad about it, I decide, no, not a good thing, I shouldn't have done it, and I do tshuva, my pork becomes a mitzvah. But if I don't put on tefillin and I feel bad about it and I apologize to Hashem, nothing happens. I don't get a mitzvah of tefillin that day. Yes, Rebecca. So, so for another class, but simple, very simple recipe for tshuva, my Maharaj explains, is you apologize to the person you hurt, if it's a person, to Hashem, if it's a mitzvah between us and God. You commit not to do it again, and um, and you feel bad about it a little bit, not too much, just a little bit, enough to get yourself to make that commitment, and then you move on. So, um, tshuva is the pro really simply just the process of working through what you did and repairing it and committing to change. Yeah, Ronnie. So I would say if you hurt somebody and you don't feel bad about it, so that itself is a problem. If you hurt someone, you should feel bad about it. So whoever...
Right, right. So the the Torah says you only have an obligation to forgive, to apologize. Uh, uh, sorry. Whoever apologizes in an argument wins. The person who is the first to say I'm sorry is the winner. All right. So it's never a bad thing to apologize, even if you don't think you did anything wrong. Let me give you a great example. Let me give you a great example. Being married to a woman. Okay? The woman is never wrong. The man is always wrong. The man must apologize even when he did nothing wrong. And so if you want to be happily married, you have to say I'm sorry. Um, so there's nothing wrong with saying I'm sorry if you don't think, even if you don't think you did anything wrong. But you should introspect and ask yourself if you did do something wrong. Uh, when it comes to forgiving somebody who asks forgiveness, so you are obligated to forgive somebody if they genuinely apologize and show you that they're trying to change. Right? So you don't have to forgive someone that hasn't apologized or asked for forgiveness. But it's a good thing psychologically to forgive people who have hurt you regardless of if they've changed. Just make sure to continue to protect yourself because if they haven't changed, they will probably hurt you again. So now, okay, so let's try to put, put together all these pieces. So why is it the, the Ramban tells us love is greater than fear, but we know that fear damages a relationship more than love builds a relationship. And so now we understand that, but why does, so why if you are, you're faced with a, a, a do versus a don't, you do the do, even though the don't is a bad thing, right? If your wife says, never wake me up in the morning, but always make your bed, and I really, if I wake my bed, I might wake her up. So the Torah says you should make your bed. I don't know if that applies to relationships. We really have to think about this. And now I'm remembering right now as I'm speaking why this bothered me so much last summer. And I don't even remember the answer I came to. Because it sounds contradictory a little bit. I would think I better not wake up my wife. The Torah is telling us, no, love is really the foundation of everything. And... Love is the foundation of everything. You need to have the fear. We shouldn't transgress fears, but when it's one versus the other, the love is more important because that's what builds relationship. And yet, at the same time, when you do something wrong, it destroys the relationship, but that you can repair. You can do tshuva. You can never again bring your wife flowers on her birthday. You can never again do that act of kindness. You've lost the positive opportunity. You didn't build love. That, that you missed out on that opportunity. The negative, you can always repair. You can fix it. You can never redo the love that you forgot to express that day. So lesson for us is make sure every day of your life to take the opportunity to show love for the people in your life. Make sure to do acts, positive acts to show love. And, uh, and know that if you broke someone's trust, if you did something wrong, you can repair. You can repair. It's hard. It's not easy, but you can fix it. Um, I don't know. Let's let's think about this further. All right. I'm, I realize I've backed myself into a corner, but uh, I'm gonna go right now to uh, to Shul in a minute, and I'll try to work this out further. But um, let's let's try to tie everything together now. So, why is there a moment of anger every day? So the answer is that the Kabbalists explain uh, that. You need a split second of anger in every day that we should have the ability to hold ourselves back from those 365 negative things that we're not supposed to do. One for each day. Each day there has to be a little bit of self-control coming down into the universe. The lack of love to in order us to tap into that energy of self-control, holding ourselves back. So we need that. So the Talmud says, that on the day that Bilaam came out to curse the Jewish people, God saw what's going on. And that day, he held back his anger. It was a day of pure love, not a moment of anger. So Bilaam did not have the ability to curse the Jewish people. The anger was missing that day. So suddenly Bilaam realized something's going on here. Normally, I can figure out when this anger is coming. There's no anger. I waited all day. There's no anger. Says Bilaam, there must be too much love in the world. Now I know how to get the Jewish people. I'm going to get them with sending them immorality. Because sexuality comes from love. 
Too much love, the Baal Shem Tzav explains, is immorality, immoral sexual practices, because it's, it's too much giving. It's too much inability to hold yourself back. Says Bill, I see that there's no anger in the world today. They won't be able to hold themselves back. Let's send in the Benos Moav. And Moav actually was born from an ancestral relationship. They themselves represent the, the very ideal of too much love. The Torah says, uh, when a, if, a, if a person has a relationship of a brother and sister have a relationship, the Torah calls that an act of chesed. Chesed means kindness. It's ridiculous. How is that an act of kindness? The Baal says it's too much kindness. It's too much lack of boundaries. Too much giving. So, so Bilam attacks with chesed, with too much kindness, too much love. Pinchas sees what's going on and he grabs a ramak, a spear. Spear, the word spear, ramak, is the letters resh, mem, Ches, which spells the numerical value of Resh is 200, Mem is 4, 40, Ches is 8, 248. The 248 positive acts, right? The word Ramach comes from the word Rachamim, which means love, Rechem, womb. And he does an act, a positive act from the source of chesed, from the source of love, but he does an act of gavur, an act of anger, an act of strength. He does what's, what appears to be a violent, bloody act, but it's the source is from rachamim, from compassion and love, 248. And essentially what he does, the Torah says, is he returns anger to the world. He returns that spark of negativity, that spark of that you need in order to have self-control, in order for us to control ourselves from doing things that are overflow of chesed, overflow of kindness and love. And that's why he gets the the bris shalom, the blessing of the 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 blessing of peace, because peace is the coming together of those two energies, and that's the goal. The goal is that the chesed and the gevurah, the strength and the kindness. The masculine and the feminine should come together in harmony. That's the act. That's 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 what a kohen is. A kohen is someone who does a seemingly cruel act of slaughtering animals. That's literally what they're doing in the temple, in order to reveal the the kindness that's underneath everything. So I feel like we've uh, exhausted. We have not exhausted the topic, but we've exhausted our time. I'll just conclude by throwing out a commonality that we find in the four reasons that the temples were destroyed is that the, these three sins that Ronnie mentioned, immorality, murder, and adultery, uh, adultery, murder, and idolatry are all essentially acts of connection gone wrong. Right? Adultery is the desire to connect but in an improper way, in a play, way that doesn't build relationship idolatry is the desire to connect to God but in a way that is misguided connecting to God through intermediaries and murder is is really the ultimate disconnection between people so we have on all three levels between a person and themselves between a person and, and others a person and God disconnection lack of connection improper connection and the other reason the temples are sort of is because of baseless hatred lack of love lack of proper boundaries and the this these three weeks are weeks of dinner weeks of anger weeks of gavura judgment and yet the kabbalists explain that the root at the root of these weeks is really love that underneath all of it is love it's desire for proper connections proper relationships proper boundaries which is which is really at the root of everything and that's our goal so our job during these three weeks, which are seemingly negative times, is to try to see through the negative to the positive, to the source, to the love that's underneath the surface, that's guiding us and trying to bring us uh, to our ultimate potential. So we should all be blessed to healthy relationships in our lives, which utilize the balance of love and positivity with boundaries and respect. And, uh, and together, by doing so, we should see these days of mourning turned into days of joy. 
with the the coming of Mashiach, which uh, is the harbinger of Mashiach, is Eliyahu, Hanavi, Elijah the prophet, which the Talmud explains is really Pinchas. Pinchas was rewarded by uh, through his act of eternal life, and um, he becomes this spiritual harbinger of the redemption. Because the goal of the redemption is the is to bring the world to balance, balance of giving and receiving. Thank you guys for listening. Um, we have a couple minutes. Any questions?